0: Imagine being the star of your own movie, a CIA black ops human intelligence expert going back in time to 1996, assigned and responsible for closely monitoring and collecting intelligence on a man you're told by the highest levels of your leadership is extremely dangerous, but you've never heard of. Imagine being assigned to a human target in Sudan that was being closely followed by a broadly respected intelligence expert, Billy Waugh. Imagine six years before the attacks of September 11, 2001 that you were assigned to collect intelligence on the daily activities and networks of Osama bin Laden. Imagine today having intimate details of the world's most infamous terrorist and having to live with the knowledge that your instincts were correct. Imagine knowing in your bones that this man would be the penultimate cause of the pain and suffering felt around the world, and the pursuit of the elimination of his life's work would cost the US trillions of dollars, and even worse, thousands of lives. Today we dive into a world of shadow games, extreme danger and international intrigue with a man whose real life exploits put even the most imaginative spy thriller movies to shame. Rick's new best-selling book, Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior, offers a fascinating peek behind the CIA's classified curtain. It reveals the most indispensable role of human intelligence in geopolitics, an element often overlooked amidst our technology-driven world. Head over to rickprado.com for more details on the book. Fasten your seatbelts and prepare yourself as we journey into the clandestine universe of international espionage with the legendary Rick Prado. My name is Nick. This is The NDS Show.
1: The U.S. government uh, or United States troops in Arabia. What about U.S. civilians in Arabia? In '88 and '89, Bin Laden's name began to appear.
0: Rick Prado. Why does the United States need black ops?
1: Well, you know the the, the intelligence process is is quite complicated, uh, and but mm-hmm. there are times when the U.S. hand has to be hidden uh, in order not to compromise what what we're doing, whether it's uh, undermining uh, a, a an enemy or or anything like that. And uh, you know the the agency is the only government component that has Title Fifty authorities. That come directly from the president of the United States. And, you know, I've never broken a U.S. law, but I've broken a lot of overseas laws because as long as my, my president says, go do this and do it, um, we're we're good with that. So it, it is simply another another tool for uh, collecting intelligence or for doing covert action. So black ops are really covert actions where perfect example is the Contra stuff that I talk about in the book, where the Sandinista. Reagan takes over, he declares war on communism. He signs a, a finding just like Bush did after 9-11. He, they sign a lethal finding that says, you are allowed to go after these people. And that's what, that's what black drops are.
0: Well, awesome. You mentioned the, the kind of the process of, of intelligence and I, and I want to dive into the book a little bit later, but first of all, I kind of want to start with, with kind of my unique perspective. Of, there's a lot of other great podcasts with you out there there um there's one on concrete from danny jones which is fantastic i recommend people check that out we'll put a link in the description um but uh, as an intelligence person i'm always curious about what what the intelligence process is like can you tell me maybe um why the why human intelligence is so powerful like why is it so important to have boots on the ground insight
1: yeah you know the, the 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 problem has long been that technology we, we want to rely on technology you know eavesdrop on things and penetrate things and, and that's fine i mean we you know intelligence is a team sport the, you know everybody's got their their pattern they have to to do it in order in, in order to get to the goal line uh but the difference between human and an intercept is that human comes from in in our case comes from assets or agents that have been recruited they have been tested. They have been vetted. Their information through the process grows. So, if you give me good information today and that's validated tomorrow, the descript- your source description goes mm-hmm. higher. So, right. you have a controlled source that you ops test, that you polygraph, um, and, and, and you have a very usually you have some very valuable stuff that comes out of them that you're not going to find um, in cyberspace.
0: Yeah, and I I find that um, any really good intelligence person has to have kind of a level two understanding of the other ints. My background is in geospatial intelligence, but I know the absolute best intelligence that I can get that I can provide is cursory at best because I'm I'm looking from a distance. I'm using remote sensing, ISR, that sort of thing. But um, working with the human teams, always always provides the best results because they just, the, the level of depth and knowledge of what's happening on the ground is so much better. Um, you talked a bit about working with humans. So human is the only intelligence source that works with uh, people, right? Humans, they have emotions, right? It's not a sensor. It's not some satellite system. They're humans. Like can you maybe tell me about working with the chaos of emotions that must be involved in these human intelligence operations, I mean, you have people that are risking their lives to go collect Intel, whether they know it or not, uh, wittingly or not. Um, uh, what is that like balancing those emotions?
1: Well, you know, it, it, it is uh, the, the foundation of what the agency really does. That's our main job is, is to, you know, spot recruit, you know, um, develop, recruit, uh, and, and run and vet assets. Um, the, uh, the the process the emotion part of it is there, we look for strengths we try to mm-hmm. recruit for strengths that's not the case with the Russians that's not the case with the Chinese they're very big on recruiting by on weaknesses in other words a honey trap mm-hmm. um, they, they they drug you put you know put you in a bed with um, three girls or three guys or whatever and then th- that that extortion aspect of it. Uh, I never saw that in my agency in the 20, almost 25 years that I did in there. That's just not us being Americans. We have an upper hand because whether people voice it for real or not, mm-hmm. anybody who's out there fighting for freedom for their own country sees us as the guys with the white hat. They don't see anybody else uh, out there. Um, so that, that part of it is is what we look for, somebody who's got compatible ideology that we can work with because it benefits them also. Uh, The idea, the ideal candidate, and again, they they run the gamut, okay? But the ideal agent is the individual that has access to the information that you need and realizes that working with you, he can make a difference to the positive of whatever his cause is. Uh, and, And so it becomes a mutual agreement. Uh, those people tend to be a lot easier to handle. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're more dedicated. Uh, they're easier to train because they're 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 focused. And um, but you know it, it's a game of finesse. Uh, not not two assets are the same. You know you, you, the buttons that I right. push with you know the minister of interior that I recruited in one place uh, is very different than the terrorist that I that I included in the other place right. or the uh, you know and, and and so that's that's the the art. Of 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 uh, of, re- of recruiting and running assets, you know. There's there's a science right. part, you know. The recruiting cycle, pole, you know. Like I said, spot, you know, develop, re- recruit, and run, and all that. But the, the 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 art form is being able to look at that individual, and through conversational, find out what makes him or her lose sleep at night. Right, and that's what you go after. That's what you try to say. Hey, I have a way. To let you sleep better in the future, because right. what's going on in your country, what's going on with it, how it's affecting mm-hmm. your family, and so on. So you know that that's a that's a two minute um, from a four month course. So, <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> no problem. You guys got this. You're all experts now. You just heard it from Rick Prado, so you're good. Well, um, you. <laughs> you, you mentioned this a bit, but uh, you know that where the United States is seen as the the white hat intelligence, right? Um, Is there anything else that might be surprising about the way our black ops philosophy um, or tradecraft, you could, you could say play out in the world stage that people maybe don't understand?
1: Well, I mean, you know, the, uh, the, the black ops, let's, again, let's use the Nicaragua incident there, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, For the first 14 months of that program, I was the only CIA officer allowed to be in the camps for the simple reason that I had the military background, but I'm also a native Spanish speaker and I look Hispanic. So I was there as a Honduran major and the Hondurans were our supporters. They they were the only people that knew who I really was. Um, But that's how we operate often is through help of another country you know, uh, be able to carry out an operation where we cannot flaunt the U S hand. Now, two and a half years into the program, it was the best unkept secret in, in, in the world. Everybody knew that we were involved. It was now an, an open thing. It was in Congress and everything else. And then we started having, you know, regular American, um, you know, specialists come, come in and, 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 and help out. But, uh, that that's that's probably the best example of of black ops uh, we we've done them in many many cases um but at the end of the day what you're really looking for is human uh black ops ha- cannot cannot happen without having the right human information to support it
0: yeah and um uh, you you bring up a good point and I want to talk about this later on um about uh the current state of intelligence and this kind of push for more transparency which I'm all for you know, you're seeing this explosion of open source intelligence and the things you can do with OSINT these days. I mean, imagine, you know, all the all of the work you've done uh, over your career, uh, how much more information you would have going into those operations um, with, with the, the plethora of data we have available to us oh, in the yeah. open source oh, intelligence yeah. community. Um, you would have been just more prepared um, in all of your experience um, before we kind of jump into the book a bit. Uh, I'm always curious about the ca- the counterintelligence game. You know, counterintelligence is all often referred to as a forest of mirrors, right? It's it's the it's the thing you always see in the movies where this spy is versus this spy trying to catch this spy. Um, do you have any experience running into foreign counterintelligence um,
1: elements? Well, look, that that the, the foreign intelligence element uh, is it's a consideration in any operation, especially human that you're doing. Mm -hmm. OK, we have CI specialists. We have people that actually make a career of helping us look for the the, the counterintelligence threat. Um, And and I'll give you an example. When 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 I was chief of operations at the Counter Terror Center after 9-11, we we would have meetings uh, once a week and there will be a list of assets that Mm -hmm. we were going to review and you'd have somebody from the station that actually flew in, usually the case officer, right. he or she who handles that particular uh, source would be at the table. The head of reports will be at the table because that's how we verify a lot of, uh, corroborate and verify a lot of the information assets, but so our reports officers are there. We had a CI individual and I would head the meeting. Well, the idea is to see if there's things that we're missing if there's, Is there something mm-hmm. that, that raised our suspicion? Uh, have we gotten laxed? Do we have our, our, our stuff squared away? And like I said, reporting is one of the biggest, you know, ops testing mm-hmm. is essential. We operationally test. We give them a task that we know the answer to before they get it kind of stuff.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if they do it correctly, that's a plus on their side. If they don't, it's a minus. So all these things to get taken into consideration, and, and it is a very, very elaborate uh, team-oriented uh, process.
0: Okay. Um, so, I mean, I, I keep hearing the word team come up in your, what you're saying. And I, I love that because I think a lot of times in movies and things, intelligence is always depicted as some one rogue person going and doing something. But in my experience, it's all about a team. Like, we do everything as a team. C- you know, communication has to work properly across uh, elements. And everything we do is is a part of one combined team to for that mission. Um, so so let's let's hop into the book a bit. So here's the book. I have the book here, and I'll put it up here. Uh, we'll put links in the description so people can buy it, check it out. The book is Black Ops: The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior. Um, this book, first of all, the book is freaking awesome. Like just Thank just you. go buy it. Don't look back. If you're into history, if you're into the intelligence game, if you're into just having a good situational awareness of what's going on around you, you need to read this book and you need to go get it right now. Um, so, so Rick, first, let's start out with, why'd you write the book?
1: You know, we all dream about doing something in our lives. You know, I I wanted to be special military, which I accomplished, mm-hmm. and I wanted to be an, an intel officer, which I accomplished. Never did I ever th- thought of having author, much less best-selling author, Uh, on, on my, on my title. But you know, when I, when I retired from the agency and my world slowed down enough and actually, you know, post Blackwater actually too, because I was doing a lot of work there too. You know, my life was a blur. You know, you, 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 you capture everything, but you don't have the time for introspection that you have once you retired a little bit, at least during that time, the process for me was I started realizing how much it irked me The reputation that my agency has in the media, especially Hollywood, and even more importantly, how derogatory the descriptions of CIA operations officers is out there in in the public Mm -hmm. domain. So, you know, we we have 140 stars now on the wall. We're a very small agency, and uh, those 140 stars deserve Mm -hmm. that. There's kids and grandkids. Have a different view or a realistic view because I don't pull. You see, you read the book. I don't pull punches when they're they're screw ups. I'm there.
2: Yeah.
1: You know when politics kicks in, that's one of my pet peeves. I, I'm there, but uh yeah, it, it's it's um, it, that's 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 the process for for my getting to writing the book was trying to educate as many people as possible about what we really do and how we really do it, and so. You know these these kids and grandkids. What did you do during the war, Daddy? They have something that is realistic, not Jason born or American Made or any of this other stuff out there.
0: Yeah. um, So sounds like what you're really trying to do is destroy misconception. You know, shed some light on a traditionally dark area. uh, Right. Everything from the from the '50s on with the CIA has obviously been conspiratorial and all this. There's a lot of crazy stuff about the cia out there only because it's crazy right i mean that real life is crazier than the the fiction oftentimes and your book is a is a perfect example um so maybe let's let's walk through a little bit of it i don't i don't want to give it away look you got to read this book it's just it's it's brilliant um in every level but uh maybe 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 let's let's jump right into where your first assignment so um you from the streets of cuba to the streets of miami to the cia so you gotta read and understand um his story there but well, maybe we can jump into honduras um what were the left and right limits of of your assignment there in honduras
1: that was the beauty of that assignment though you know we were making it up as we went along and since i was <laughs> the only guy in the field um uh, i had a huge responsibility of, of mm-hmm. honestly reporting back to my uh my chain of command, where there was only five people when we started this program. Colonel mm-hmm. Ray was my boss, legendary guy at the agency. And uh, so um I got into the agency primarily because I had the paramilitary medical training. They needed somebody for a special operations that was both a mil- you know, paramilitary guy and who right. had advanced medic uh capabilities. I, I rode rescue for Metro for six years while I was in the reserves. Mm. So Uh, That's what exposed me to the agency. So when Reagan took over and declared war on communism in in Central and Latin America overall, um, they called me up because they did not have at the time a single native Spanish speaking paramilitary officer because of the post-Vietnam attrition. Uh, That's how I got called in. Uh, Mm -hmm. I went into Honduras with no additional training other than my street smarts and my paramilitary training and a very good boss who uh, guided me through every step. My job was to go to the camps, check the realities there, uh, make friends, um, make them dependent on my confidence Mm -hmm. uh, and provide them with every single thing that they needed. Uh, And you got to realize that not only did I bring in logistics and medical supplies and doctors and intelligence, um, you know, for the first 14 months, I was the only guy that could train them on everything from headspace and timing on a 50 cal to how do you fire an rpg 7 or a law you know uh, those kind of things i literally would go from camp to camp teaching this i used to do two camps a week uh monday through friday uh sleeping in a jumbo hammock for three years and uh it was the most fun i've had with my clothes on
0: <laughs> uh do you ever miss that jungle hammock
1: you know i do um i i i um I miss that that experience, and I relish it so much because you you got to understand, Uncle. For me, um now I'm a 30 year old man. In the in the Nicaraguan border, helping people that were affected by communism, just like my family was when I was a kid back in Cuba. I am now fighting that same monster because it was the Soviet Union through Cuba, now through Nicaragua, to Salvador and so on, and I'm in a position where i know i'm making a difference by the, the, the individuals that i'm training um the operations that i'm carrying out you know you know about the portugal bases uh scuba team that i put together all those things are right there you know? and, I, and i think that uh that's one of the things that's, that's that's good about the book is that there's a lot of sexy stuff that people go wow but they're real it's none of this i'm fighting 15 guys and i beat them all up you know like <laughs> that that doesn't work so Right. Uh, for me, the parameters were great. It was such a great job because it was so rewarding that the people that I was training were all there for a very personal reason. They needed freedom for their country. They needed freedom for their family. They needed freedom for their religion. One of the biggest pet peeves mm-hmm. was how much they cracked down on the Catholic Church and beat up the priests and you know burned churches down. Uh, and the, the atrocities went on and on. So each one of these individuals had a personal reason for living in this incredibly terrible right. you know uh circumstances and and you know the threat of being you know the the, the border you know it's it's, mm-hmm. it's a very porous thing you know the sandinistas are in and out and we were in and out so um it, it was it was a very rewarding period for my life yes Uh
0: you mentioned a bit about the contras right this is who you're talking about here um and you've talked about it on some other podcasts we don't need to go too crazy into it but what what do you want people to know about them? As people because I you know if you look at a lot of historical texts on who these people were they're not always shown in the greatest light and I'd just be curious to know your thoughts having lived with them and
1: well you know it's, it's it goes back to um, being the guy on the ground and really seeing what they're doing I mean you know mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the 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 conscious were divided in three Semi-geographical groups, Mm -hmm. the northern uh, uh, the FDN, the northern uh, part of the of the the program were led by former Somoza guys who were not simpatico to to Somoza. And they were now, you know, trying to 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 gain regain the freedom of their country. That was the leadership. Everybody below them were actually peasants from Mm -hmm. the west side of, of Nicaragua, mostly. And extending down you know three quarters of the way down to the lakes um, that was the the area of operations for that part of, of the uh, the leg the, the the southern front of of the uh, the contras were actually dissolution sandinistas that had taken up, up arms under Eden Pastora and a couple of other leaders uh and started their war from the mm-hmm. southern end because they knew that they were on the other, uh, northern end eventually we were able to you know, get them to work together. And, and that took some doing. Then you had on the East Coast, you had the formidable Mosquito Indians, uh, Mosquito, Sumo and Rama. There were three, three, uh, three tribes there and they're Native Americans um, um, and they, they're, they, they've always wanted autonomy. Uh, they want to be a, a separate state. Um, the government will not do it for not because of they care about them, but, but because mm-hmm. that's where all the gold mines are that that the country gets a right. lot of revenue from. There you go. Um, but the mosquitos were natural hunters, natural stalkers, natural warriors. They knew guns. Mm-hmm. They knew how to you know be, be covert, how to be you know jungle hunting kind of stuff. So they were easy easier to train, and they had a very pure spirit also because they brought so much to the contra fight when it came to politics what you alluded to was when you start trying to run operations through a political optic you're going to screw mm-hmm. it up uh politics and ops whether they're intel ops or military ops they they do not they don't cohabitate mm-hmm. uh, very well so yeah for for uh, for the overall effort um these these individuals were patriots they were anti-communist they were religious god-loving uh individuals mm-hmm. that adore their families i would say that 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 was at least 90 percent of of the people that i dealt with in in, in, the, in the contrast north south and east because i mean I, I did them all right um it, it it was extremely rewarding to see how pure the reasons for being there you know, you take people say, "Well, you know, he was a lieutenant with the Samosa." Well, lieutenant in 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 in, in Nicaragua, army back then, you know, as a kid that just you know probably graduated from high school and right. you know, two semesters of college or something. <laughs> so they're they're not part of the ruling elite, and these young men are in a camp, living in a you know thatched hutch, um, getting shot at every couple of weeks because Sandinistas were making incursions or or they were making incursions. Um, and it sure as hell wasn't for the money because they weren't getting any. Right. So, yeah, it, uh, were it was, there a, a 2% out there or a 3% mm-hmm. out there that was uh, not benign. Absolutely. I don't know anything about the alleged drug trafficking, um, that, you know, some people say, well, you know, some of the countries were selling drugs in order to, uh, keep the program afloat while, you know, the Boland amendment and stuff like that kicked, kicked it off the rails. Um, but I do know personally, and you read the book, there were, there were two uh, sub commanders that went rogue after the, the main commander, who was one of my favorites, Susida, um, fell ill. And these guys became bandidos. They were, they were cattle rustlers, they were stealing cattle, they were forcing people into town. Right. And um, I was sent to bring it back, and I did. I brought them both back. I renditioned both of them over a two day period and almost got killed doing it. So uh, <laughs> there were some bad elements there. But even in that particular incident,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it was just a handful of the guys right. that had taken over that that camp. Uh once they saw one of them leave, they all started cooperating and allowing me to get to the second guy, which I did. So
0: um so the you mentioned kind of these rogue elements. I think in any sufficiently large group of people, there's always gonna be knuckleheads, right? There's always gonna be outliers that are um doing stupid stuff. I mean you see that with you, almost you
1: any our we own people. military, Nicholas. I mean, you know, of we course. have we literally have motorcycle gangs in in the military. <laughs> we have gangs inside our military. Yeah. People don't realize that. Yeah. You, you know, you it's made up of people and you're mm-hmm. gonna have people that get through the process that shouldn't be there, but they are.
0: Yeah, I, I live about two hours away from Fort Bragg and the stories that I, I hear about Fort Bragg on a you know, I was stationed there as well, but um the stories i hear these days are just like head scratchers you know like uh man, man bites alligator type stuff um very cool so you mentioned that um you came pretty close to death down there can you maybe tell that story about um how you were able to kind of thwart that that danger
1: you know it's classic human one one. Uh, and I had never been through a course, but I was like I said, I was a street savvy guy. (laughs) And you know, my, my dad taught me, my dad had friends at every level and and I learned that, you know, how to, how to make friends. And this particular thing, what happened was six months before the actual incident, this young, nobody, he was just, you know, like an 18, 19 year old kid Mm -hmm. that was fighting there. He was no rank whatsoever. He came to me and said, major, my wife is very ill. And, uh, I, I need a medicine that I can't, you know, I can't afford it at the little village down here. So, you know, I reached into my pocket, took $20 worth of Lempiras, which back then was a fortune for them. I went, here you go, go take mm-hmm. care of your wife. So when I went to get these guys, um, I grabbed the first guy right on the spot. Uh, he met me outside the camp. That was mistake number one. <laughs> um, I sent his bodyguard on an errand. And, and uh, next thing he you knows, he was inside the helicopter, disarmed, and going back to, to Tegucigalpa. But then I had to go to the camp because I needed to talk to the folks there, and I mm-hmm. needed to see where the other uh, SOB was at. And um, I'm at the camp now. I'm walking in uh, and walking around like I've always done because I own the camps. From be- Literally, it's, it's one of these cartoonish kind of things. Be- behind a bush, you, <laughs> I hear this, psst, psst, mi mayor, mi mayor, major, major. He says, they're going to try to kill you tonight. And I said, "Why?" He says, "Because they the, the the people that are trying to defend the the two guys, including the one that you already renditioned, um, they want you out of the picture." And I, I first took it with a grain of salt. I said, "Thank you, really appreciate it. If you hear anything else, let me know." Mm-hmm. But then I'm going like, I don't know, that's far fetched. Well, every time I would go to the camps, they would always put me in the middle of the camp because they want to protect me. The last thing that they want is for their food source or ammo source to get captured. If, sure. if if the uh, camps get raided and they got raided several times, you read the book. I got in a couple of uh, scraps there for, for that. This time they put me, put me and the two guys that were with me in a hutch at the edge of the, pro- of the camp, right where the wood, mm. where, they, where the border, the, the wood line started and the mountain started. And you know, the old, that, the, that that's, that's a clue. Uh, and I said, <laughs> right. Okay. Now I know that this is probably for real. So I, I briefed the guys on what had I, I found out, and when they, um, as soon as it got dark, we crawled out of the back window, low crawl into the woods, went up and set up a, an observation post. We set up our perimeter. We had brought every bullet we had, every grenade we had, and we mm-hmm. set up there. I said, well, if they're going to come, they're going to have to come and get us, and they're not going to catch us in our sleep, and I'm going to take half of them with me. So... That boasted my guys and they were, they were, you know, ready to Mm -hmm. rock. Sure as hell, right around midnight, you you hear the commotion down there. You see, all of a sudden you start seeing flashlights going into the, uh, into the cabin. And they are very pissed off because Major Alex is not there. Um, They probably looked up in the mountain and went, oh shit, that's where he's at. I ain't going to go get him because he's the guy that trained me. He knows what I know and what I don't know. And I know he's got the high ground and I know he's going to be hunkered down and mm-hmm. uh, let, you know, let it go. So the next morning, uh, as soon as it started, the sun started coming up. We came back down, get, got in the hutch, went out to breakfast, just like nothing had happened. And it was the most surreal situation I've ever been in because there were just a handful of guys that if looks could kill, I wouldn't be here. Right. <laughs> but the majority of the people in the camp were looking at me like, You're something else. You guys are something else. We're so glad that you're with us. Kind of, you know, it was, you know, and and of course, like I said, they uh, they facilitated me abducting the the second guy who was armed. His bodyguard trying to intercede, and I dissuaded him from getting into a losing fight and uh, brought him home. Thanks to these guys and these the 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 rest of the camp resuscitated tremendously. New leadership, Mm -hmm. um, and they kept doing great things.
0: Yeah. So that's super interesting and and i and i bet i'm guessing here that once those guys were gone there was probably maybe some improved morale with with some of those people that probably knew that they were being
2: sketchy right
1: without a doubt i mean these these guys went under military trial Mm. and one of the things that they were convicted of was murder and rape they took a a, one of the opposing commanders, sub commanders that was trying to oppose them they Mm. tied him to a tree they raped his wife in front of him and then they killed him oh god so uh these guys um mm-hmm. you know they suffer the consequences you know, through through their own military chain of command through their own you know uh, mm-hmm. uh process but uh yeah the, the rest of the people were elated that now they could go back to what they were really doing which was trying to fight the sandinistas
0: well good riddance i imagine the honduran prison in the 1980s probably wasn't the but you know most luxurious place you probably didn't
1: spend too much time in a prison
0: (laughs) i gotcha i gotcha uh very cool so let's maybe jump forward in the book a bit um to the to the bin laden days because look 9-11 on my life has had a huge impact i joined the military shortly after 9-11 and i think a lot of people in my generation that served in the military did so because of 9-11 and the, the story here is just spectacular to just think about it and rack your, your head on. So I was wondering if maybe you could walk us through kind of how you got assigned yeah. to this and what's going on. Yeah, I, I, had.
1: Just, uh, I had just gotten my GS-15 and I had just come out of uh, Seoul, Korea. And I was back at the Counterterrorist Center, which was where my heart belonged. I mean, mm-hmm. I was a paramilitary officer, home base in the paramilitary group, which is the special forces for the agency all taken from the U S military special forces. Um, so I had, uh, I had the Palestinian branch and the chief of operations, uh, the then chief of operations called me in and he said, um, we're, st- we're starting a, uh, a virtual station. And I go, Jeff, what the hell is a virtual station? <laughs> he goes, well, it's a new thing. It's going to be as you, you will be outside of the building, but in Conus, and you would be run, you would be running like a task force station. You'll have the authorities to send your own Mm -hmm. traffic. You don't have to coordinate with anybody. You can task everybody on this particular topic. I'm going, I so what would my role be? He said, you would be the deputy chief of station. You would be the senior ops guy because Mike Shoyer was the analyst that knew all about this individual that I still didn't know anything about. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jeff says to me, he says, look, you know, we. uh, your name came up and, and I, I support it. Are you willing to take it? It's going to be you know, a hell of a job, but you know, you take it. I said, Oh, absolutely. I said, I only got one question. I said, who are we after? He says, Usama bin Laden. And I went, who? And he laughed. He says, exactly. Um, six months later, we had at least tenfold information on him, being able to task assets and, and, and get very focused and aggressive. And also I did a lot of traveling to, countries that I'm not going to mention, but allied countries sure. where they had insight briefing their their liaison, our liaison services, you know, the the, the local intels and, and special military. So um, the, the, you know, the irony of, of of this is that we started the Bin Laden task force real early January of 96. We actually put it together in wow. late 95, but we actually moved out mm-hmm. early 96 and we were like eight people. Uh, there was... Another case officer who was an Arabic speaker, there was an FBI rep, and the rest were analysts. The rest of the people there were analysts and, and, and targeting officers. And, yes. uh, you know, at the time, we had incredible amount of information because he was in Khartoum.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, we had a, a, a legendary Green Beret guy who became a legendary agency guy, Billy Waugh, who unfortunately we lost a couple of months ago. Um, Billy was the head of surveillance in Khartoum making book on Bin Laden. And on, on his spare time, he's the guy that captured the jackal. Um, you know, Carlos ailes uh, yeah. Ramirez, the jackal. Um, it, just a phenomenal individual. But the amount of information that he was providing with photographs, you know, ass- assessing their capabilities, you got a guy that knows, you know, hey, can we take mm-hmm. these guys? And time and time again, he would come back to us and say, we can get him. If you, we do this way, we can get him. We can render this guy. Not, not just kill him, Kill him would have been probably too easy. Um, but the idea would have been to render render him into uh interrogation because by then we knew without a doubt that he was uh, fomenting the camps, mm-hmm. financing the camps, the, the training, even overhead supported this, that the camps, wow. the training that was going there was subversive activity. Um and, you know, you had volunteers, you had people that had been recruited, mm-hmm. you had all source uh, information really indicating. And the, the administration just, you know, no, well, we don't have enough proof that he's a bad guy. Huh. Um, just think, mm. just think for a minute if in 1997, early 98, we would have rendered Bin Laden, what a difference this world would have been. Because the, whole, the first thing that would have life. happened was the attack on the coal. Right. That was, his, that was his masterpiece. The bombing of our two embassies in Africa. Simultaneously, that killed hundreds of people. Probably wouldn't happen, mm. and if you projected enough, even 9/11 might have never even been a consideration. Um, I always, when the topic comes up, uh, you know, people say, "Well, you know, you know, you mentioned that you could have killed them. That's immoral." And I say, "Well, you know, it, it depends on how you want to look at it. Let me ask you something: What do you think that the millions of people that died under Nazi rule would have thought if somebody would have put a bullet in Hitler's head?" in 1939 right so this is the same thing we allowed a monster Mm -hmm. to grow strength and become a formidable opponent and until he bled us in the thousands um that's when the gloves finally came off we could have avoided a lot of american blood
0: yeah thousands of lives and trillions of dollars later (laughs) and then we finally finally um Get them there and in as a, in a bad compound in Pakistan. Um, as a GS15, I mean, was there any? I mean, I, I get it. Like Looking back, hindsight's 2020, right? 2020, every, you know, I, obviously if I was there, yeah. I would have done this. Yeah. But that's just not true, right? I mean, you don't know what you don't know. You can't predict the future. No one can, including people that pick stocks and throw that out there. Um, but was was there ever a time during that when you just had a just like a feeling like this, like we need to do this? Or was there ever any thought of just. You know, telling the leadership it was an accident, something happened. No, we No.
1: no. I mean, look, that's one of the myths that I try to dispel with the agency. OK, uh, I've never seen a rogue activity in the agency. You got to understand the the agency gets the blame for everything Mm -hmm. from killing Kennedy to um, the Bay of Pigs fiasco, which was a a screw up by that administration, uh, not by the planners. And what people do not understand is the amount of oversight that exists in the agency. Right. You just can't say I'm going to go do an op and you know my boss doesn't know about it. I mean that's that's it happens in the movies. That's the only place that it happens. Mm -hmm. Now what did happen? We kept taking this up to the seventh floor. Explaining mm-hmm. why we were planning, here's an option, right. here's another option. And uh, they were taking it up the ladder, but that administration at the time was not buying. Um, there's nothing that the agency can do in, again, in a black operation like rendering Bin Laden. Right. Because remember, going into Khartoum is an act of war. Sure. So going in there and grabbing this guy or surreptitiously going in there and killing this guy uh, was, you know, a, a substantial endeavor that you just cannot do that, you know, from, from on your own pocket. Hey, I'm going to take 30 days leave. I'll be back in a month and go kill the lot that 's That's, that's, that's fallacy. That's only happens in the movies. What was your gut telling you at the time? Oh, no, he was a bad guy. We started calling him the Godfather really early on because wow. what differentiated him from the other terrorist, besides the fact that he had $50 million of his own money and the fact that his dad is the, mm-hmm. one of the wealthiest guys in Saudi, Saudi Arabia, is, yeah. the biggest construction company in, in probably in the world. Um, he was extorting a lot of money from Saudis and other Arab countries that mm-hmm. say, hey, you, know, you need to donate to the cause or, you know, there's going to be things happening in your government, in your place. So we, we knew that all this was going on. We knew that he was very wealthy, very well connected. And very, very, very dedicated, he had like most young folks, he included you know during your younger mm-hmm. years, you do stupid stuff, but he he became a man of faith, and I will tell you i I respect my enemy i don 't hate my enemy, sure. I respect my enemy i'll kill them, but you know not because I hate them, but because they're trying to kill me or mine, right so right. bin Laden was a believer, uh and that's a powerful force mm-hmm. half behind in, in my in our business. North or south, east or west, believing in what you're doing makes a difference, makes a huge difference. Um, so he was literally the first guy that reached out from his organization, Al Qaeda, to other components out there mm-hmm. and provided them with intelligence, provided them with money, provided them with support. And it's the old, hey, I'm going to help you now, but someday I may need a favor from you. I need right. you to help me uh, bomb this 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 embassy in Africa, whatever it was, because a lot of these were joint efforts led by Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda actually means the base. So that was his perspective. To create mm-hmm. a base of terrorism, like the brains of an octopus and then all these tentacles that come out of it. Um, so there was there was no doubt in any of our minds. Mike Shoyer was livid. I mean, Mike Shoyer, unfortunately, um, became very bitter and disappointed, rightfully so. Uh mm-hmm. But, you know, we are a military uh, structured organization. You know, GS-15 right. is a colonel, SIS is a general, that kind of stuff. And you don't walk up to the, three, the five-star general on the, on the top uh, floor and say, the death, the blood of these people is in your hands. Um, hmm. You know, that's just not the way we do things. Um, and I think that, th- to be fair to our leadership at the time, um they they were they they were not getting the traction above them with the administration it wasn't them not willing to at least present it but uh mike took it very personal
0: man that's that's really i mean just crucially interesting to me because i've been involved in operations and i've seen the modern version of what you do or what you what your career has been um with drones and all that good stuff yeah, yeah, uh, and, I, and i understand that you might have some thoughts on that but i've been inside high intensity national security mission operations and i know for a fact that when things are hot when things are happening all the time there's a there's a saying in poker is when you start when you start losing or the cards aren't going your way you start betting and being overly aggressive it's called being on tilt and and i've and i've seen it in mission operations where people are on tilt right things are are happening in everything you see blood everywhere you just you start to see it and um having experienced that into the restraint that you're describing is is conflicting in my mind because i i've just i've seen both sides of the fence um so i just think it's really compelling and really really an interesting um thing to talk
1: about but you know clarifying that a little bit i'm not saying yeah. that we do not have internal fights that hey we want to, we need to go kill yeah. this guy I, I said that myself every other day you know <sighs> we need to get oh. this guy we need to get this guy
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and, and the pushback was there um my point was rick prado and mike shawyer could have not done, of you know, course. send out a cable of to Billy Waugh and yeah. Khartoum and say, kill him.
2: <laughs> right, yeah.
1: B- Billy, Billy, like yeah. I said, he was a very, very dear friend of mine. He's all over my book too. Um, but Billy used to sit down when the topic would come up because uh, I debriefed the hell out of him because he was right. a guy that, you know, a new car, uh, Khartoum and knew new uh, Bin Laden. And he told me one day, he says, Rick, he says, I got so close to him, I could have killed him with a rock. Ah. Oh. And if you know Billy Waugh, you know that he could. <laughs> he probably uh, could have yeah. at, at any age. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the fight was on, and, and I, I I referred to this a little earlier. You know, um, mm-hmm. you cannot run special military or intel operations through a political optic.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And unfortunately, our agencies are very politicized, which is the downfall of any agency is to become politicized.
0: Yeah, and it's unfortunate that you're actually seeing that. Um, so much i mean I, I followed the whole twitter files things pretty closely and in, in terms of what the intelligence agencies were doing colluding with uh twitter to censor american citizens and things like that in the intelligence community if you want to spy an american citizen fine but you got to go to a fisa court and get stamped by a judge
1: yeah, there you go.
0: um and they just seem to be circumventing that i think there's probably you know when you when you Climb the ranks in these intelligence agencies. You get up there, and and maybe this is something you can talk about because you GS fifteen is up there. I mean, that's that's way up there. Uh, Maybe you could talk about this a bit. There is a sense to me that at a certain level, people do start to play politics. They start to to drop their ethical standards and do things because they want to get the next ambassador position, or they want a a role in the White House. Um, They want favors for them. So they start to do favors for campaigns and things like that. And this is exactly what happened with the FBI and Hillary Clinton and all that stuff. What are, is that, is that reality? Am I right? Or am I just projecting?
1: No, no, you're, you, you, you're, you're, you're spot on in, in, in several things. Um, first of all, you know, I, I didn't, I, I was a, I was a GS 15 in 1995. I retired as an SIS too. So I was oh, yeah, there you go. I had been a chief of station uh mm-hmm. of that rank, and I was chief of the Koreas, which was a deputy chief of division uh, at the time that I was there. So I got to go to the seventh floor. I got to brief at yeah. the seventh floor. And lucky for me, I mean, the biggest I, I, I received some really nice commendations and medals when I retired. In, but the biggest medal of honor for me is my guys coming up to me and go, boss, you're the only senior officer we've mm-hmm. worked with that is first through the door, first on the mat first picking up brass and first getting in the face of people that don't want to do what they're supposed to do. Um, that became a, a sticking point for me because I did see what you're talking about individuals mm-hmm. coming up the ranks. And, but again, it's not the majority Right, the majority of the right. people are still trying to do God's work, protect this country, protect our people um but there are people and i have and i've heard them say it you know there were there were i i have you know we have sources inside our own building you know and, and friends will mm-hmm. come up to you and go and say yeah you know so and so was just saying that the problem with what you're trying to do is that if you guys succeed nobody's going to know and they get no credit but if you guys fail they're going to get fired mm-hmm. and i'm going like well that, that that talks about lack of testicular fortitude and backbone hey <laughs> eh? um Right. So it it's it's real uh I I think taking it to the the current point part of the problem is the leadership okay um in un, under un, under John Brennan who was not an operations officer he was an analyst um and 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 subsequently you know uh, uh before and after actually um the, the 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 agency was very politicized began to be politicized and and here's my point if you are appointed by President X to that position, to a position of leadership of a federal agency, and you do not belong to that fraternity, who mm. is your loyalty to? Yeah, the president. It isn't to your, isn't yeah. to your people. Um, and it is a political, it's like a, a political appointee ambassador. Mm. You know, it's one of these guys right. that, yeah, he donated a bunch of money and now he's in the, the ambassador in Paris. Gets to put that title in his name and blah 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 blah.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: it, it's um, it's frustrating, of course, because it does become politics. But you know, we right. we have we have the talent, internal talent that could have risen to the to the ranks and be directors of central intelligence. Kofor right. Black, right, legendary. He was right. our he was our, our um, you know the uh, chief of the counterterrorist center. When nine eleven happened, a dear friend of mine, I would follow him to hell and back. Mm-hmm. Um, Jose Rodriguez, who replaced him, another legendary. Uh, mm-hmm. These are guys that could run the agency uh, with their eyes closed. Right. And they they have one additional thing that political appointees don't have. Credibility with the troops. Yeah. You know, if you've yeah. never sat in a car with a terrorist that you recruited, like I have, how do you empathize, as my boss, who just came from Harvard or whatever, right. um, with what you know my family goes through when I come home uh, after a day like that? Uh, how do you understand the, the the risk, the kind of preparation
2: mm-hmm.
1: that you have to have to run those kind of operations? The sympathy isn't there from the top, and definitely the admiration is not there from the bottom for them.
0: Yeah, and that's that's such a great point. I I was there when David Petraeus was. Um, I know, in charge, um, and as a military person, I admired Petraeus because you know all the <laughs> his whole thing, right? A uh, uh, great leadership in the military, um, and then he had to retire with some sketchy thing. With some, he had an affair, or something cheated on his wife, which was awful. Um, and then Leon Panetta came in, um, whole different, whole different story there. Um, but but Leon, he was a he was an appointee, you know, just like kind of appointed. But everybody kind of loved him. He's a very charismatic person, so he was always walking the halls and and being uh, very interactive and engaged with with everyone.
1: That's what a politician um, is.
0: But, and that's that was exactly my just, point, Rick. You just
1: described a politician, yeah.
0: But when but when you get into the ops, right? It was right. Um, and I think it's uh, you're talking about a crucial. A crucial element of being a leader in any capacity, which is you have to be able to empathize with the people that you're leading or else you're just, you're not going to, you're not going to care as much. Right. Um, um, and I think that's just such a crucial thing for any, a leader of any agency, like man, you gotta at least work there for a bit or something. I mean, I don't know. There's gotta be something, something done about that. Um, so, so very good. So eventually you did retire though. So maybe you can tell, like you know, why why did you decide to retire, and you know, uh, what was behind that decision?
1: Yeah, you know, I had uh, by by other people's description a stellar career. I climbed through the ranks pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I made SIS two when I was uh, in '99. Made SIS one in '98 90, uh, when I took over the careers. Um, I went back to CTC uh, and became the chief of operations for mm-hmm. CTC nine eleven happened. Um mm-hmm. we worked extremely hard and extremely successful. Uh, I I like to point out that as much as I admire uh and I'm a part of our special operations fraternity, um, first boots on the ground in Afghanistan were the agencies. The first right. Green Beret helicopters that came in, God bless them, they were lifesavers, but it was my guys on the ground vectoring them in. So it was a very d- dynamic uh, time. We were using the predators, a, mm-hmm. you know, the, very early on with the Hellfire missiles. we, we were hitting them from, 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 from everywhere. But what I noticed was that there was, we were kicking the crap out of them in, in war theaters. But I had learned through my years in counterterrorism that the real soft undervalue of any criminal organization and to me, terrorism is, is about as criminal as it gets. The soft underbelly is their support mechanisms. Why? Mm-hmm. Because their support mechanisms have to have a visible person. Mm-hmm. You have to have a persona. You cannot be the chief of logistics for Al Qaeda living in, in, a, in a cabin. I mean, in a cave in Afghanistan. You have to live in Europe or Latin America or wherever where you can get access to documents, where you can get access to medical, where you can get mm-hmm. financial support, where you can pass information. Yeah, obtain uh, communications equipment, all that stuff. So I I came up with a program, a very robust program that um, was briefed to the vice president of the United States and Condoleezza Rice, and they both Mm -hmm. approved the program. Well, needless to say, you know, cry havoc and and let loose the, the, uh, the, the dogs of war. We were on it like white on rice. We were all over these guys making book on them, you know, in, in surveillance and not knowing where there were some cases working with liaisons, some cases unilaterally. But the bottom line is we stood up a program that was meant to be, and it was, an intelligence collection program with teeth. And let me explain what I'm talking about. Yeah. What was frustrating for me as chief of ops in, in, in during 9-11, especially with my Bin Laden background, was we were hearing all this kind of chatter. We knew that there was something going on. Mm. We knew that they were gonna hit us. We know that it was a big deal. We were pretty sure that it was gonna be in the United States, but we did not know what it was or when it was or where it was. So the, the, the theory behind my program was, give me three leaders of every terrorist organization that is part of their elite support mechanism and let me make book on them i go out there i get patterns of life i know mm-hmm. who they're screwing who, where they eat what must they go where they right. go, what car they drive all that stuff we had on these guys and then imagine this let's use hezbollah as an example let's say we're doing this uh, you know we have our three guys in hezbollah and all of a sudden we we start getting that kind of chatter that oh my god you know they they're doing something they're planning something it's it's imminent blah 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 well imagine what happens to any clandestine organization If three of your mainline unrelated support mechanisms get neutralized, Mm -hmm. you feel you're penetrated. You're gonna hit the brakes, you're gonna disrupt. CTC's motto is disrupt, prevent and disrupt. That's that's what that's what we're supposed to do. We're not into you know, vindictive activity, although killing bin Laden was and rightfully so, you know, very proud of that one. But yeah, it it was um, it, it came full circle for us um, to mm-hmm. to see how how things had developed and and uh, when when the program was briefed and the pres the vice president approves it and my seventh floor is is going through briefing after briefing and they're saying there's no doubt and this is a quote this is a quote and it's in the book uh, the the uh, the then DDO said um, Mr. Director. There's no doubt in my in our mind, that Prado and his team can not only do this, but they can get away with it. I'm going like, hallelujah. <laughs> and then he says, however, we have to look at the you know, political ramifications of doing that at this time. Hmm. So after a couple of those, where, you know, I had pick the litter, they had given me some of the brightest, you know, best background officers that I've ever worked with, all retired SIS 4s and 5s a few years ago. Uh, I couldn't keep these guys. I mean, yeah, we're doing all the the sexy, mm-hmm. repelling, upside down, pitching grenades and driving cars and all the. the but that's not what the agency is main core mission is. These guys and gals had careers, so I went to management uh, and I said, "Look, you know, I I will not be a paper tiger. I'm not here just to brief right. wall." And I shut down the programs, and shortly thereafter, I retired.
0: So is it is it safe to say that? You wanted to take more action than than was allowed.
1: Oh,
2: like, by all means, I safe mean, we, way to sum had, it
1: up. Absolutely. Look, we we had, and everybody always called you know the the the, the uh, vulgar description of what we were trying to do was CIA's head squad, mm. you know, okay, like kill squad, uh, and and nothing could be further from the truth. We mm. were collecting intelligence on bad guys, coming right. up with methods of how to disrupt them. And I will tell you, one of my favorite methods was put something in their car. We had training on how to pick a lock on a car, get in there, put inert explosives and fuses or drugs or whatever the hell we wanted to. Mm -hmm. And then have somebody call the cops. And will they beat the case? Yeah, probably. But they're out of commission for two years. So it spread the gamut. Yeah, there was people that we said, do you want this guy taken out? We can do this. We have the training. We have the personnel. We have led by me. That we are willing and able to do this and we have proven it by demonstrating to you when you visit us in training, what we are capable of doing, you know. So, uh,
0: so there, there was no taste to even just disrupt the operations? I mean. Yep.
2: No. no.
0: Like not even disru- not even take a couple of minions off the street for a year.
1: No, like, 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 like you heard me say, you know, uh, yep, Prado can get away with it and, and get her done. Dude. But we, the political ramifications and, you know, the concern was, was I mean, I understand mm-hmm. their concern, but it doesn't justify. Sure. It's like, you know, I could understand the, the, the fear of somebody uh, jumping out of an airplane. But if you're part of the 82nd Airborne, guess what? You're supposed to jump out of a damn airplane, right? So in, in our world, is the same thing. You know, you you have certain things that you're capable of doing and you want to be able to to, to execute. Um, The politics just wasn't there. Every single time is the the political ramifications at the time. And uh, yeah, it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking for me. I'm very proud of my agency. I I am very proud of my service with the agency. I had incredible leaders for the most part. But when the politics kicks in, um, Mike Sawyer suffered under Mm -hmm. it. And the American people suffer under it because Bin Laden did what he was able to do because we didn't stop him when we could have.
0: You mentioned it went to to the vice president, but this is not a vice presidential decision. This is an executive decision. Do you, in your heart of hearts, believe that the lack of action was the fault of the president of the United States?
1: No, 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 no. I think that the, the the lack of action was my upper echelon leaders not really selling the program. Not the the program okay. beefs so, briefs so well. You go to somebody and say, hey, look, look at the capability we have. Mm-hmm. We have three bad guys in every organization that is targeted and we can put the button on them at any given time and right. disrupt them. That briefs, I mean, who doesn't want to have that in their pocket, <laughs> right. in their toolbox, right? So I I think that it wasn't, you know, and it was the vice president that spoke to us, but his attorney was there. uh, Mm -hmm. The president's attorney was there because it was Bush that signed the lethal finding on 17 September, and this program came and was, um, you know, brought up to be part of that uh, that lethal finding that was signed in in 17 September 2001. So
0: you've you've lived through this um quagmire of inaction right september 11th happens what's going through your head when you're seeing the news of this attack
1: well you know that this uh, just like yourself the the impact that that had on 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 every red white and blue american was eviscerating um hmm. more so for guys like like us that were we knew that if this was bin laden we might have been able to prevent this. Uh, but at the moment, you you don't go back into history. You don't go back and you, you go to the right. future and start planning yeah. on how do we get to find out who it was and, and, and everything else. And, you know, we all remember uh, what, where we are, uh, where we were and what we were doing mm-hmm. when when nine eleven happened. And I, I, I thank you for, for your service. And you yourself mentioned to me earlier that you entered the military when after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Well I will tell you again to high cuz I love highlighting the quality of my my fellow officers right We had three paramilitary guys that had left the agency were all working in private sector six figures making big money yeah Big money and on 912 they were at our door saying I will bring you coffee I will clean toilets let me mm-hmm. back in Right and we had that that was there were several dozens of people that came back mm-hmm. that had retired or had you know resigned that came back because they needed to be in, in the fight um I, I will never forget uh you know uh, uh, john o'neill was a guy that i that I got to know he was uh, the, the senior fbi guy and then eventually he was the guy in charge with security for the uh the twin towers and uh You know, he died. He died saving people in there. So, you know, it was personal in so many cases, so many different uh, phases. But um, the fact that the president knew that this capability existed, the vice president knew Condoleezza Rice knew. And the fact that they were not revisited. Come on. You know, when when you're when you're the president of anything, you have to have people come to you and say, hey, remember that thing that I told you about? Uh, No, refresh my memory because there's so, so many you could put in your rucksack. And um that that was the criminal. I am me and my guys were were pretty much convinced that if it would have been gone up to the White House, we would have gotten the green light to do at least one of these operations. Um wow. but it, it it never happened so
0: When it, immediately after, you know, we realized that it actually was an attack, was did your gut tell you that it was Osama bin Laden?
1: Yeah, I mean again because, you know, uh, before being the chief of OPS, I had been the chief of international terrorism, so I knew about Hezbollah, yeah. everything mm-hmm. else, you know. And uh, we were pretty sure, but we had no real proof on the onset. And and there's a, there's a vignette in the book that I that I love telling because uh, uh, this young lady um, was the deputy chief of the Hezbollah branch, and Christy was seven or eight months pregnant when 9/11 happened. Hmm. Every federal building was evacuated, including CIA, Right. except for the counterterrorist center. We had a full house of volunteers that said, we're not going anywhere. So seven o'clock at night, I'm making the rounds, trying to catch my second breath. I slept there for three days before going home. Mm. And I see Christie at the computer and I walk up to her and go, what the hell are you doing here? And she was a very, you know, energetic young lady. And he looks at me, says, boss, says, remember that until today, Hezbollah had killed more Americans than anybody else. You know, we cannot rule them out. And that's what I'm here to prove. And I said, well, that's very noble of you. But you're also eight months pregnant. I've delivered two kids before. <laughs> right. None of them are mine. And I ended up delivering a third. So you're getting your ass home. <laughs> so I have one of my logs guys I, I take her home. The reason I love that story, though, Nicholas, is, is We all know what the maternal instinct is. Imagine a young woman who's seven and a half, eight months pregnant, sitting at a computer in a building that for all we knew could have been next.
2: Right.
1: And overriding the maternal instinct of protecting that child in your belly to prove Mm -hmm. or disprove that it was your account, that you didn't miss anything or that you did miss something, but here's what we Mm -hmm. can do about it. If that doesn't describe the ethos, completely contrary to Jason Bourne and all this other crap, she she's a poster child for what an operations officer, right. female on top of that. Not because I mean she was a great operations officer, not a great female operations officer. Right. She was a damn good operations officer, and she told me later. I said, you know, I, I, after I had the baby, I, I would always think of you of her, of her birthday because, what was I thinking? <laughs> Well, you were, you were thinking with your, your patriotic heart, not your maternal heart. So.
0: so earlier, Rick, you mentioned those 140 stars on the wall at CIA headquarters in Langley. Um, what, do the, what do those mean to you now that you've had this incredible career and had time to reflect?
1: They mean the world to me, um, and I'll explain why. You know, we had used, like you said, we have 140 stars, but you know, Almost a quarter, a third of those are mm. post nine eleven. Wow. It's like Mike Spann, Jennifer Matthews, these mm-hmm. are people that I knew personally. Jennifer Matthews was a plank owner of the Bin Laden task force. She was one of the youngest analysts we had when we started UBL Alex Station. So, I mean, that is that is the the um, the very foundation of the sacrifice that we make. Because we all make a lot of sacrifices. We risk our lives. We put our family through incredible amount of stuff. We move our families every two or three years. But we just had Memorial Day, you know, and and that day is dedicated to those individuals that even among the one percent
2: mm-hmm.
1: of the two percent that serves, not everybody dies. And th- these are people that actually pay the the the, the ultimate price. Many of them are anonymous. There's a lot of the the, the stars there are not identified because sources or methods we can't. They've been opening up a little bit more every every time. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's good. Uh, But it means the world to me. And like I mentioned earlier, it is one of the primary reasons why I wrote the book is I felt I owed them a debt of honor Mm -hmm. because they some of these people we sent into harm's way, just like we were sent into harm's way ourselves, you know. And if they if they don't come back, you owe them a debt of gratitude because they've made a hell of a sacrifice and that family has made a hell of a sacrifice. So I just wanted, you know, the, the, the wives, the mothers, the, the children of some of these stars to be able to go, oh, so this is how the agency actually works. So this is the kind of person right. my daddy was or my grandfather was. They mean the world to me.
0: Yeah, um, that's certainly a a special a special place uh, in the building and and you always you know pay attention to it whenever you walk by so um appreciate the the insight there uh you've been to a lot of a lot of countries all over the world you know in various circumstances of (laughs) how how stable they are in terms of their government Are, are there any commonalities to all these places that you've been to these operations that you've been involved in um
1: well i mean the, the the commonality was the fact that they were part of the intelligence game uh mm-hmm. whether it was uh more kinetic like it was during the contras or almost kinetic as as the it was almost in, in the philippines um it was still the basic recruiting developing running uh coordinating with the local services uh and I, I think that I gravitated to uh, to the places where things were happening. And it, it was mm-hmm. funny because I went from, uh, I was in the Nicaragua Contra stuff. I went, got my my master's in espionage. I was sent to Costa Rica. From Costa Rica, I went to another Latin American country that I'm not allowed to, uh, mm-hmm. to mention, but it was my first counterterrorism uh, uh, assignment. And from there... Um, they asked me and I accepted to go to the Philippines. So the shrinks in the building actually called me in from our office of medical services. They called me in right. and they said, yeah, we just want to see why you're going from <laughs> tour to tour to tour. You got kids, you got, I go, I thought that that's what I was supposed to do. Right. It was my bosses that came to me and say, Hey, would you be interested in this? I'm going like, "Hell oh, yeah. Hmm. So, so go ahead. So
0: those assignments were brought to you. You didn't like, pick them out of a hat or anything
1: you know actually in in my case i would venture to say that um, just about all i don't i don't remember ever saying you know the actually the only place that i that i wanted to go to was japan i was big japanophile Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and uh, i even studied japanese for a while uh and my assignment got changed to the koreas so i never got to go to japan but i I didn't go to korea uh, not by choice I, i never thought about going to korea i wanted to go to japan Right. But again, you know, the chief of station in Seoul um, asked for me by name. The division chief pitched me, even though I've been studying for 14 months, a different language. And um, it's funny because when uh, it, it kind of dictates my whole life, uh, the, I asked him one question. I said, can you tell me about the special program that, that, that he wants me mm-hmm. to run? He goes, no, I can't. I said, <laughs> I'll take it. Because with my clearances, yeah. if you can't tell me. What the hell the special program is it's about? It's going
0: to be something good. Right? That's where
1: I want to be. And yeah. the rest is history. So, um, yeah, it, it, I, I think throughout my career, um, I never put in for something for a political, you know, okay, if I do this, it's going to get me promoted. I just wanted to, uh, to make a difference. I, again, because of my childhood, you know, like, as, as you know from reading the book, I was <laughs> born in Cuba, you know, came to, uh, to the United States to an orphanage, uh, joined the military at the age of 20. Uh, this country has done everything for my family, in, including my kids. Right. So um, for for me, the mission, you know, the old, the action is the juice. Well, but the mission was the purpose. And uh, when you combine the two of them, you get to have a lot of fun. Uh,
0: earlier, you, you talked a lot about this kind of political quagmire of inaction. How, um, you know, there was not the political will to take action. Um, prior to 911 to but after 911 there seemed to be a lot of will for things like drone strikes yeah. what, what why is it more palatable to kill someone with a hellfire missile
1: than a bullet to the head it's, it's or hypocrisy elsewhere? it is hypocrisy it's political hypocrisy um don't get me wrong I'm a big proponent of, of, the, of, of, the, uh, of the drones. And uh, as you know, again, from the story, I pulled the trigger on one that wiped out about 17 of these jerks. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's another weapon. I, I, I totally agree. But what you got to realize is that when you use a drone on a target, there's always collateral damage. N- nobody that's worthy of being a target is going to be driving himself through right. the Sahara Desert. He's going to have bodyguards and cousins mm-hmm. at, Or they're going to be at a wedding or whatever the hell it is that they hit so you're always going to have collateral damage that plays right into their game that's not the strike number one strike number two is when we go physically hands-on on on a target like we did in iraq like we did in afghanistan with you know working with our, our special operations forces you know when we hit a house to get a high value target that wasn't the only thing that we got we got every computer we got right. every notebook we got every tv right. every dvr every record everything that we could get come back and analyze all source mm-hmm. uh, analysis and and that was another thing that you cannot do post a a uh you know a hellfire up up your trunk of your car yeah uh, so you you end up pissing off a lot more people getting you know th- this guy had you know 12 cousins and now they're all radicalized because you killed their the senior cousin or whatever um but I go back to what I said earlier. What if I would have been able to put a bullet in Hitler's face in 1939? Right. How many millions of people would be alive in this country if that would have happened? So it, it carries on. I, you know, I don't, I don't talk yeah. politics. Notice I haven't mentioned any president by name. Um, but I, I think one, one thing that I, that I do uh, that does concern me is the fact that we, as Americans, we have it so good that we don't know how you know we don't we don't know how mm-hmm. good we have it to tell you the truth, and we have this naive sense of of, of safety, and when you look at who our enemies are, right. they're all predators, they're all vicious predators, and you cannot fight a predator with the morality of a sheep. <laughs> you have to yourself be a wolf uh uh-huh. yeah so well, when what happens is and and i'll use this as a historical because I said i don't i don't like talking politics i'm an intel yeah. office not a politician but i do like history and you know when when uh, jimmy carter took over um jimmy carter former military he was a, a navy admiral brilliant religious well meaning he did incredible mm-hmm. humanitarian stuff post post his presidency um uh, not corrupt a very decent individual But he was naive, he was weak, and he came across as food. And when you're sitting across the table from predators, look what happened. The Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan right after he took over. The Iranians captured our hostages out of the embassy for Mm -hmm. 444 days. Gave away the Panama Canal was trying to pull the troops out of out of South Korea. Right. All because it was, it's a benign world. Let's show a better, let's be friendly and see that a snake is a snake, a predator is a predator, and sooner or later, it's going to eat you. And like- look what happened when Reagan took over. As soon as Reagan was sworn in, they mm-hmm. released our hostages in Iran. I wonder why
0: like uh, Jack Nicholson said in *A Few Good Men*. You know, you want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. You know, uh, you got it. Takes people like like that to uh, defend what we have. And speaking of predators, probably the largest predator in the world right now would be Vladimir Putin and what's happening with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Recently, the CIA released this video, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this video. Um, basically the video is them trying to recruit people willing to, to uh you know provide insight into the the Russian uh government or how people how yeah. people are on the ground. Yeah. What are, what are your thoughts on this just open espionage?
1: Well, look, it's it's a first of all sign of the times. So it's like you know yeah. podcasts is something that's fairly new and look how wild wildfire that has become. Um, but this is nothing new. I, I will tell you, before the fall of the Soviet Union, our it wasn't it wasn't advertised in a movie, but what we were cold pitching mm-hmm. uh Russians, Soviets, was I say, Listen, you come to work for me today, you get a Rolex and a house in Virginia. You mm-hmm. come to try to work for me after your place combos, and we're gonna give you a quarter so you could call somebody who gives a damn. Right. And this is what this message is in a much more sophisticated way. Remember, I mentioned to you that we like to recruit on strengths well what bigger strength that you are a, a Russian citizen and your son just died in Ukraine, right. and this idiot keeps doing the kind of stuff that he's doing and uh, you know and the the kind of pressures that puts on his own people the the famine that you know all every every negative thing that you could through. You don't think this guy has all the positive qualities for being somebody that can say, I've had enough. I got to do something right. about this. So that's what that video was all about. I think that it was brilliant, uh, but it's mm-hmm. not new. It was just a a, a, mo- a modern version of something that we have always done. When you see an enemy with cracks uh, and mm-hmm. the population starts to rise, that's where our, our intelligence really grows.
0: Um, You're mentioning about kind of this. The Eastern philosophy versus the Western philosophy. How we've, in in some some of my previous podcasts, I've had people call the the upcoming generation soft. I had a school teacher on recently, and he, he talked about the TikTokification of America and all all that good stuff. And all that's fine and dandy. Um, we know the military right now is struggling to recruit; they're struggling to hit their recruiting numbers. Um, do you fear that we're not going to have what it? Takes to perform high stakes intelligence operations like Rick Prado in the future.
1: I think it's going to be a little harder. Um, you know, there, there's the old saying. Um, there's two old sayings. One is, "If you want peace, prepare for war." Right. And and uh, that is that is very true. You know, you have to be able to have a posture that dissuades somebody from attacking you, whether you're a government or whether you're a parent protecting your, your house or your family, you know, and um, we have so many good people in the military. I, I taught at Fort Bragg for seven years in a program called Advanced Special Operations and Tactics. Mm. Um, and I, eight, eight times up. a year I was there uh, teaching, helping teach this course. And I loved doing it. The pay sucked, Fayetteville sucks, <laughs> but I loved it because it really renewed my faith mm in American youth. I had guys in there that were in their 30s, four or five combat tours, beautiful families, go to church on Sundays, bullet holes in them, Mm -hmm. and they come back, and one day, hey, I just got the news, I'm going to Syria next week. And you sit there and you go, wow, that's Mm -hmm. humble. The problem is, you got to continue to feed that pipeline and It's a pretty anorexic pipeline as it is. You're talking 2%, mm-hmm. and this is a compliment to you, 2% of the, of the population of the United States at any given time goes into the military, serves in the military. So let's make it 4 or 5% because I always like to include my law enforcement brethren because they, mm-hmm. they do the same thing. So you got 95% right. that is really contributing in different kinds of ways and then really going in, in, into harm's way. Right. So um, th- th- that, that brings it around. You know, we, we I don't think we'll have a shortage of warriors because I I, I see them every day. But long term, you know, this is where the second adage is that, you know, tough times make tough men. Tough men make good times. Good times make soft men. Well, mm-hmm. so, unfortunately, we're at that cycle. Um, we are, you know, we criticize ourselves. Mainly because we don't know what to compare ourselves with. The average American doesn't travel anywhere that they can contrast to. Uh, I had a lady one day in this argument said, uh, well, I've been to Mexico and I took a wild guess and I was right. I said, no, ma'am, you went to Cancun on a cruise, right? It's not going to Mexico. You were not in right. Guadalajara. You were not in, you know, uh, in whatever. And uh, it's true. Most most Americans have no idea the contrast of even European cities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we go to Paris, we stay in a nice hotel, we go to fantastic mm-hmm. restaurant. Oh, the Eiffel Tower! We try to go to the DMV in one of these countries like Italy, right. you know, And then these <laughs> are first world countries. You know, when you get into second and third world countries, and when you get into communist-dominated or you know, uh, 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 you know, what is it, dictatorial regimes, right? You know, the, the, the quality of life is zero. Most yeah. of the problems that our young have are all first world problems. My iPad doesn't work. I don't have mm-hmm. reception here. Oh, I got bumped off of Facebook, you know.
0: Yeah. I I think there's a lot of reasons behind the struggles that the military is currently seeing. And obviously that bleeds into the intelligence agencies because a lot of the intelligence agencies are made up of people in the military uh, that come out and serve in a, in a, in a different capacity. Um, earlier, you mentioned, we talked about the Contras a bit about the heartbreaking personal stories that these people had that kind of drove them to action um do you fear that unless Americans are personally affect affected by either communist or some type of you know sim you know socialist system um that we would be apathetic towards uh, any type of push uh politically in that direction like does it does it do we have to live through those things personally before we realize? Yeah, this this stuff is no good. We can't have that here.
1: I hear that a lot. There's a lot of people that subscribe to that theory. Um, I have two sons. Both are military. Uh, I won't go any further than that. Um, so when somebody talks, starts talking about putting boots on the ground, it ain't Rick Prado putting boots on the ground anymore. Mm-hmm. It's Rick Prado's puppies putting boots on the mm. ground. And that really changes the perspective. So I, I am not a, a hawk in that sense that we need to be attacking the Iranians. and atta- What we need is a posture
2: mm-hmm.
1: that tells the enemy that if you mess with me, I will bite back and it's got to be credible. And I go back to the example of Reagan with, with the Iranians. Mm-hmm. They knew that he was going to go from, I swear, to I push a button. And they were going to turn the place into a parking lot and get our guys out. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, the, a lot of people subscribe. I, I hear this. People say, well, you know, I hate to say this, but what we need is another 9-11. Oof. I yeah. hear people say that all the time. And I go, that's well, yeah, cool. you know, the 9-11 did coalesce our, our, our backbone and, and got us going for. But that's not what you want. What if it's your kids are in that bill that gets hit in in 922, whatever it is? Right. So um, I I think that what we need is to get leaders that are leaders, not just politicians, um, that have the best interests of this country, um, that support our military and our law enforcement. This, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, defund police is some of the stupidest things I've ever seen in my life. And it does scare me because I am the product of, of of a communist country. I saw what communism did to my family. I saw people hanging from trees because mm-hmm. they had talked bad about Castro. Right. With my own eyes, I was 10 years old. So um, I, for me, it's scary to think that people are dancing with socialism and not looking at internally how proud we should be of what we stand for. Do we have flaws? absolutely is racism bad absolutely
2: mm-hmm.
1: what all, all the isms are bad right terrorism not going but it, it just goes on and on but we we are still the best country in the one country that defends the world i always tell people i said i hope god doesn't forsake the united states because the day that he or she you know mm-hmm. t- turns off on the, on the united states he's turned off, off on the world because we are that singular power that goes out there. Right. And of course, we have our, our great British allies and our Australian allies and our mm-hmm. ties, and you, you name it, Polish. We have a lot of good allies. But I don't think that any of those countries are, are, are willing and or able to take point in, in these kind of things. So.
0: Well, there's there's certainly a reason why we have an immigration problem, right? <laughs> there's a reason why there's so many people exactly. trying to come here because they do have opportunity here. Um <laughs> and i want to touch on this a bit because i'm just starting to see this everywhere i'm starting to see this diversity equity and inclusion all over the intelligence community um up and down the ranks uh, and i and i just saw something the other day it was um i actually think it was very nicely worded uh, this is from the public affairs office at the cia um t- her name is tammy thorpe um it says last year we reached Historic highs in hiring women and minority officers, as well as officers with disabilities. And we promoted into our senior ranks the highest percentages of women and minority officers in our 75 year history, demonstrating that there is a pathway to the top for anyone whose work merits it, whatever their background. So, a couple of things there. One, she mentioned the word merit right in there, which to me, you could take all that other stuff out of there and, and put merit right at the top. Um, is there a place? For this in the intelligence community,
1: there is, and I will tell you what why. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, I would never, I would bitch slap whoever said that I was a a good or great Hispanic case officer. I was a damn good right. case officer. Period. My ethnicity or my race—I'm white, Hispanic, whatever the hell you want to call it—that does that doesn't that doesn't fall into the equation. Um, I do believe that we need to do better at recruiting with diversity Mm -hmm. because that's what our job is. I mean, we do not work against the United States or within the United States. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So having people that have foreign cultures, foreign languages, uh, foreign appearances who are Americans, this is why I'm so big on recruiting from the military, because... You talk about the 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 melting pot in the United States. A lot of it is the military, people that come in there from all walks of life, from all backgrounds, and they're they're doing patriotic things. So uh, the the inclusion of 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 uh, you know um, um, minorities and and that diversity, I I I, I, I cheer that. But it's like any time that you go in harm's way, it's important that you know that the person next to you. Mm-hmm. And behind you, are there with you, and so it's a matter of not lowering the bar for that particular mission. Now, the mission of the agency and the mission of Green Berets is extremely different. There's a lot of commonalities, you know, wins right. hearts and minds and recruiting all that other stuff, but you know, uh, it, it, there's there's different venues in, into getting into higher management, whether you're a female or a Hispanic or, or, or anything else. Um, I, to tell you the truth, I did almost 25 years in the agency, and I personally, as a as a Spanish-speaking native, you know, uh, from another country who came to this country legally, um, I've never felt that I was discriminated against or, you know, or looked down the nose on me at, at all.
2: Mm-hmm. I,
1: I honestly felt that people saw what I was willing and able to do, and that's why I went from a GS-7 to an SIS-2 in 24 years.
0: And that- This has been my chief argument as well is that, um, when you're, when you're focused on a mission, when you have a core mission that, that you're a part of, whether that's running a business or in the military or in the intelligence in an intelligence agency somewhere, when you're, when you're really focused on a mission, you just want the best people, you want the best people and you don't, the, the, the skin color doesn't matter Sexual organ, sexual preference, none of that stuff actually matters when you're trying to accomplish a mission obviously i'm I'm all in on on you know having a fair playing field um Absolutely. it's just it's probably the, the the thing that gets me the most is the e the e in d e i diversity equity, and inclusion, so now you're supposed to magically promote someone just because of their skin color or appoint them to an office because they're uh, of a certain Gender, I just I don't agree with that. Now, the the thing the thing about this statement, which I find interesting, is that she goes through and mentions all these things about recruiting women, and at the very end, for says for anyone who whose work merits it. Now, to me, it's like a brilliant because you're kind of what you're saying is that we are we run a merit-based organization, but we're paying attention to the to this stuff as well. So I think it was actually a very well worded statement because it's almost you can't ignore this stuff that's that's happening. It's it's everywhere in our corporations, through our schools and universities. But I think this was actually something um, it seems to me like the, the CIA is kind of saying here, like, yeah, yeah, here's our statement on this. Like, we're doing really well. When I work there all my, all my bosses were women. I, you know, there was no, I was like, we don't care. We're on the same mission. Like we're, we're, we're doing um, good work and and we just want to do the best work we can. Um, All right. So, so maybe let's, let's let's switch gears a little bit. Um, Obviously you have a really cool, cool book here. Um, And like I mentioned, we'll, we'll put the links in the description so you can check out the book. Um, But you're also wearing a hat. So I wonder if maybe you can talk about your hat a bit.
1: Yeah, this is a bourbon company that was started by um, four former military guys. Two of them were friends of mine uh, from the past. And uh, they came to me and, and, you know, I'm I'm not a paid spokesman for them. I don't make a dime off of them. Uh, Mm -hmm. I just believe in their product because their bourbon is Mm -hmm. superb. And I'm a bourbon drinker. And and, uh, I always told them, I said, this is the first bourbon other than Pappy Van Winkle that I can drink without an ice cube in it. It's that smooth, <laughs> uh, but the beauty of it is called four branches because one guy's Army, one guy is Air Force, one guy is a Marine, one guy's Navy, and we're all talking, you know, pararescue. We're talking Navy SEAL, we're talking uh, uh, Marine uh, Raider type guys, and uh, an Army green beret. So they they're four special operations guys who have come together post retirement to put this thing together. Um, a lot of the money that um, are our, 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 the main charity for for us is is the third option. Third option, as as you know from your background, is is um, the agency's you know uh, 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 what is it? Wounded Warriors kind of program. This right, is for right. the wives, the family, the parents, the kids of our mm-hmm. our uh, agency operators who you know uh, get disabled or, or or get hurt. So. Um, it is a very patriotic uh, effort. Uh, as a matter of fact, the back of the hat says "Served honorably, drink honorably. <laughs> and that—that um, that, that okay. is, you know, it, it's meant for that. Understand the service is not just military, it's not just police, everybody contributes in the way that they can. You're a good example of that. You've done it in the military, you've done it in the community. Now you're also doing this that helps get certain word out to the right people. That is service in my book. Uh, so I thank you for that. You, you, that's Love a nice effect to have, but uh, well, thankfully... I'm, I'm very honored that these guys are uh, mm-hmm. uh, asked me to be, to be one of their ambassadors. Um, their, their other ambassador is uh, Randy Couture, who was six time UFC guy.
0: Now you're talking well, about language. Yep.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, you know, I, I, I when we when we did the grand opening him and I were were, were together there for quite a bit and got to know oh, him fairly well you know he was he was always one of my favorites um but the the point is this is a this is a uh, an effort by four american patriots um to produce a product that is really exceptional um but with the morality that goes behind it we we have the right you know um message uh, mm-hmm. one of the things that we did at the uh at the grand opening was we had, you know, the fallen, you know, off the fallen officer table. Okay. You know, we went through that whole process of, you know, the glass upside down and the plate and empty and all this kind of stuff. Um, it, it, it runs very deep in the ethos of this of this organization. So you have the combination of great people doing great things and a product that that actually sells itself outside of it. So um,
0: that's yeah, why definitely, I them out. definitely check that out four branches bourbon is is the name uh and we'll post links in the description of course Thank you. um rick when you're going when you're traveling somewhere to a foreign country uh and and you just need to have something at your disposal to, to keep you safe what would what would be your weapon of choice like if you had you know the access to any any weapon on earth like what would be the thing that like i'm taking that with me
1: well, that you know, that's a fantasy kind of thing. I mean, yeah, sure. If I, if I could travel with an MP5 SD, I would be the happiest guy in okay. the world. Best, for me, that's the best up uh, close and personal gun. Um, but the reality is when we travel overseas, uh, mm-hmm. we do not have the luxury of carrying uh, a lot of weapons. Um, I am not a gun guy in the sense of collecting. Uh, mm-hmm. I am a, a gun guy in the sense of that I can outshoot most people, especially with a handgun. Um, I got the tactics. I have all that. Um, but when you travel overseas, especially in our world, you know, carrying a gun is 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 the last resort. Uh, it's not like a police officer who always has to have that hand on the handgun because they're, they're, they have an imminent threat in front of them. Uh, mm-hmm. But they're working in their own turf. We work in somebody else's turf. So for us, when we're doing it professionally, um, we may have a weapon, but it's not something we resort to immediately. I personally, uh, I, I carry a, a, six, a 365 macro and I have a 365 regular. I'm a big Glock guy. I own every nine millimeter Glock because I believe that there's no gun for all seasons or holsters for all reasons. Like in the Philippines, I used right. to carry a, a 38 in my ankle because that's what I could get away with going into the hotels. Um, but for the person that's traveling overseas as a civilian, um, first, the biggest tool that you have is your brain and in, in, in being aware. Sure. Um the, the my Philippines uh incident, read it in the book. Um mm-hmm. if I had not had me and my partner, my buddy uh Davis, if we had not seen the threat and reacted to the threat before they could threaten us, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you. So um the other things is I always carry a knife. Um knife is something you can buy anywhere or go to a restaurant, take it or whatever it is, a knife is a hell of a weapon. Um flashlight a good flashlight with a nice poker in the front. I try, I, <laughs> I carry one of those everywhere I go. That's, you know, if I go out at night and I don't have a gun because I'm in, in a country where, you know, it's not the United States. Um, I, I carry the flashlight a knife, you know, and most importantly, my awareness. So I
0: just, I just, I just want to prep people that I did not tell Rick this question at all. He just, <laughs> he just got a library of answers here. Ready. Uh, that's really cool. Um, so you got this book out here, you're doing a bunch of podcasts, you're going all over the place. Um, I would be shocked if there's, I know there's probably some movies that intersect it, but who do you want to play Rick Prado in the Rick Prado movie?
1: Well, you know, I get asked that out a lot. And, uh, the first time I was asking, yeah, the first time I was asked, I, I said, well, how about Danny DeVito and everybody? (laughs) Um, no, you know, we, we do have some oars in the water for, for, um, for different media um my dream yeah. media would be a good documentary you know uh, five six episodes that actually carries yeah, that'd the book be cool. because like i said you know um my, my 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 bad you know my my pride is my my career
2: mm-hmm.
1: and author is not my career i'm not a career author i don't right. have the the interest in, in writing additional books i may or may not but i you know right now i don't um so it it is basically uh trying to continue to contribute in any way that I can and uh if if uh, if a documentary or an adventure series or something comes yeah. in and is successful and it helps promote my book further and get the word out further that's that's what really floats my my boat uh
0: very good so if you have any ideas for who should play rick make sure you throw those in the comments and i don't know maybe i'll give something out to the best comment the best option who knows there you go Um, i'm always all about doing that um
1: a bottle of bourbon
0: (laughs) oh there we go i will (laughs) i will personally buy a bottle of four branches and send it to whoever has the best response in the comments um mark my words there um let's you know we talk a lot about these operations and things like that but you're a person you're a human being that's done all these amazing things uh what role has loved love played in your life
1: well love is everything i mean my love for god my love for my country and my family that's you know at the end of the day that's what you fight for um i am blessed with a wonderful family um i had incredible parents Uh, my first hero was my dad um so i think love is does make the world go round you just have to uh understand that even love has a price of admission and, and you have to, you know, love for country, you have to serve it you know, love for your family. You have to be loyal to it. You have to be, uh, you know, you have to provide, you have to guide your, your family in the, in the right way you know, uh, with, with your children. So, yeah, I, I'm a firm believer. I, I'm, I'm a, a hopeless romantic. I, I really am uh, mm-hmm. for a knuckle dragger, especially, um, so yeah, I think that that's a very important quality in anybody um it's part of it should be part of your soul,
0: and you do touch on it in the book quite a bit um which I just wanted to mention that it's not there there is some some great stories in there definitely check it out go to rickprado.com, ricprad dot dot com um we'll make sure we put all the links in the description scroll down, click that stuff make sure you're following Rick on all his twitters and all those things um and- my name's Nick. This is the NDS show. I want to appreciate everybody for, for listening, Rick. I'm going to, I'm going to leave it with you, man. Let, 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 send us off in a good way. What, what message do you have for the
1: world? Keep the faith, grow some backbone.
0: Keep the faith, grow some backbone. Take care y'all.